Before we start the episode, I want to briefly introduce the concept that motivates this podcast. There's been a recent explosion in all kinds of podcasting, and in a way it shows why they have become so popular and there have been so many at the same time. That is, it's a very democratic way of disseminating information. And you can make a podcast, at least in theory, about anything. But when you go to listen to a podcast, or maybe to find a new one, you'll notice there's one of a few categories you can sort through. You can find a news podcast, uh, cooking podcast, entertainment, arts, history even. And if you do well in one of these categories, you can uh, rise to the top. You become one of the up-and-coming ones. Maybe you get a little banner across the app. But what if the podcast you want to find, or in my case, what if the podcast you want to make is explicitly not going to fit into one of these categories? You know, it's a fair enough thing, I suppose, to make podcasts for people who like to cook or people who like politics or people who like history. But what about people who are disillusioned? What about people who are skeptical about modernity? What about people who feel like something is missing from modern life? What category do you go to to find podcasts about that? I don't know. And I couldn't really find one. But that's what this podcast is going to be about. Coming up is episode one. Tony Soprano, Jay Gatsby, and the American Dream. Sopranos was a TV show that came out in 1999. It was on HBO, and it follows the life of Tony Soprano, who is the head of the Soprano family. He has a son and a daughter. He's married, and uh, he's also the head of the Soprano crime family. If you haven't seen the show, keep listening, because it's not really going to be a plot summary, and there won't be any spoilers. But if you have seen the first episode or even the first five minutes of the first episode, you start to get a feel for the time the show was set in. I mean, it's not one of these mafia movies or mafia shows that's set in the past. It's set in modern times. It's set just about when it's made in the late 90s. Now, I was about two years old in 1999, so I don't remember anything about this time period. But I get glimpses of what it was like from the fact that there's a lot of stuff that was around in 1999 that was also around in like 2005. And probably even that's the same kind of era. And what do I mean by era? Well, it's about the cars people were driving, the music they were listening to, the clothes they wore, the houses, everything. I mean, restaurants they ate at. There was a whole kind of cultural ethos 
of the late 90s, which maybe felt fairly normal for the people living in it. But even from just the 20 years since it first came out, I think we now see that this was certainly a time that had a distinctive something going on. And that distinctive something wasn't necessarily good. If you take a look at what the mafia guy was in the late 90s, it's not the glamorous life you see in the first or the second Godfather movie. And I think you can basically say it's a decline from the post-war organized crime life pretty linearly, or let's just say you're not going up much between 1940 and 1990 as basically law enforcement and technology combined to make it extremely difficult to do organized crime. Uh, in the show, there's constantly problems with people flipping because they you know, pinch them on some other small thing using cell records or uh, tapped home phone or basically as soon as you can start to record stuff, you have major problems doing organized crime uh, for a living. And there's plenty of other pressures pushing on uh, organized crime life. People aren't as loyal as they used to be. Family doesn't seem to have the importance it once did. So the whole idea of having an organized crime family, well, families are not as important than your organized crime family, which is sort of an artificial thing to begin with, was seems less important. And you see all these problems in the show. But if we focus again on the type of stuff that populates the show, I think it's very striking. You know, Luxury cars started out as a kind of culmination of all of the best craftsmen uh, on the planet coming together to make one product. Engines were handmade. Seats were handmade. Chassis and wheels and all these things were, were put together in a kind of um, master creation of a bunch of people with highly developed skills. And maybe this is at its peak in the 1920s and 30s, when if you go and look at a Duesenberg or a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley from this period, they're just sparkling sort of magnificent creations. Now, they were only for, you know, maybe the, the 1% or the 1% of the 1%. But it's not like people stopped making cars for that group of people in the 1990s. There were still cars made for the 1% and the 1% of the 1%. And Tony Soprano is definitely a one percenter. But if you look at the car he drives, it's like a big, um, it's a black Escalade. The whole interior is plastic. Sometimes he's picked up in somebody else's Lexus and you'd think, well, maybe it's a foreign import. Maybe it's a lot better. No, it's really not much better. It's a beige sort of ugly thing, plastic uh, all through, you know, even the European cars suffered from this. I mean, if you go and look up a Mercedes from the late 90s, you'll say, "Ugh, I mean, what? That's not a car that... I would be happy being seen in, maybe because it's old, but probably because it seems like no one cared very much about it at all. Now, if the cars were bad, uh, a lot of the houses being built at the time were pretty close to as bad. Some maybe even were worse. This is like the peak of the age of McMansions, and Tony Soprano definitely lives in a McMansion. It's in a suburb of New Jersey. He lives in a house with all sorts of you know architectural, stylistic add-ons and none of them really fit together got a garage got like a you know sort of spiral thing going here uh three different kinds of roof whatever it's the classic mcmansion and it's next to a whole neighborhood full of them it's a big house it's got a pool it's got some nice land associated with it he's a he's doing very well for himself but he's reflecting even in the first five minutes of the show 
on a feeling of lack, kind of a stomach-level sadness that he's experienced. And he's explaining it to the viewer's surprise to a therapist. And this is a great contrast when you first see it because you go, wait, big scary mafia boss with a big accent, big car, big house is going to therapy? I mean, this guy, like, is he for real? And, you know, he keeps it a secret from his mafia guys because it's a sort of embarrassing thing. But he's explained to his therapist, you know, why he feels this sense of melancholy, that something's missing in his life despite achieving success in lots of arenas. And he, he lands on a quote which essentially sums up the whole six seasons of the series. It's really right in the first five minutes. He says, uh, while sitting in the office speaking to his therapist, he says, quote, It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that, and I know. But lately, I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end, that the best is over. That the best is over. Isn't that kind of the feeling that you're supposed to have, uh, I don't know, when you are doing very badly? When maybe, you know, you just lost a bunch of money or lost a close family member or you sort of are going into the decline of life. Not like a 40 or 50-year-old guy who's done very well for himself and has to raise his kids and essentially has got a good chunk of his life ahead of him and not a, sort of a diminished portion. I mean, maybe the best possible life that the late 90s can offer. And yet you have this sort of feeling that something might be missing. So the question naturally arises, what's missing? Well, one idea might be that the thing that's missing, the reason that he feels like the best is over is that the family that he's part of, the crime family, I mean, basically the the mafia organization is under attack by uh, law enforcement and that despite being at the head of it, he has to sort of manage the decline of this institution. And this certainly plays out throughout the show. He... Uh, has to deal with several characters who become informants. Many are killed as the crime family is attacked by law enforcement and sort of other forces which are basically pushing it into obsolescence. Maybe the natural allegory to take from this quote is that while he may be talking about it in relation to his mafia life, that it has uh, a fair number of parallels with America's position in the world, that a sort of the new country had essentially reached the status of hegemon. Remember, this is when Bill Clinton is president, the Cold War is over, there aren't really that many enemies in the world, at least, especially in 1999, you know, stuff gets more complicated in a few years. But somehow you have, you know, this TV show with the successful guy in it saying the best is over, and the therapist, as soon as Tony says the best is over, says, you know, I think a lot of Americans feel that way. And she basically gives you the cue to go ahead and think about this line, not just as about the life of Tony Soprano, but as the condition of American life. This analogy with America is also the position that a lot of the media uh, about the Sopranos and the writing about the Sopranos takes. I found one article that I think sums up this allegory nicely. Quote, If there was one reigning sentiment to the Sopranos, it was that the golden days of American supremacy, of the unquestioned patriarch, of living the suburban dream of decadent overconsumption, were fading fast. Tony's nostalgia for the past, for some old-fashioned vision of easy living, surrounded by an adoring family, was the engine that drove the show forward. 
we were treated to an extreme close-up of a man whose masculine tricks, bullying, threats, bribes, seduction, teasing, and outright violence didn't work anymore. Watching Tony try to come to grips with his mistakes, his weakness, and his confusion in the face of pressure sometimes felt like watching our bluster, our own sense of ourselves, our might-makes-right beliefs as a country, fall to pieces before our eyes. End quote. Now, on some level, this kind of interpretation of what The Sopranos is all about has got to be right. And I think it even, you know, whatever The Sopranos is reacting to in American life, some strain of that exists today because a lot of people would say that there's still a sort of uncomfortableness with uh, America's position in the world and the gut feeling that it can't last forever, basically, and the decline is somehow inevitable. That article does a good job summing up what I would call the Bush-era malaise, even though Clinton's technically still president. Essentially, there's this question of what America's purpose in the world is supposed to be after the Cold War, whether uh, the system of alliances and economic interconnectedness we had set up to prevent the spread of communism was still worth pursuing given no more communism. I think at the core, if we really want to give the best possible interpretation of this theory, that it's America's role in the world that's motivating the stomach-level sadness, I think you could point to something like the fact that America was essentially ruling the world, at least as much as any other country was. I mean, we were the world hegemon. We protected uh, trade on all the world's oceans. We had by far the most powerful armed forces and had a lot of economic influence over most uh, of the developed world. Despite all of that, there was not like a concrete reason why that happened. We were ruling the world and we didn't know why. And this was a position the British found themselves in in 1900 or very late 19th century. And maybe there's a kind of wandering aimlessness that comes with that, essentially achieving success and not knowing why, especially when you have the feeling that success might not continue. And given that you don't really know how you achieved it, how are you supposed to prevent it going away? I think these are all valid questions which get at the core of America's ethos in the late 90s, early 2000s. So at this point, I think we have essentially two good theories for what Tony might be reacting to when he says he came in at the end and the best is over. One is it's the decline of organized crime. Two, it's the decline of America as a world power. The theory I like, though, is that it's not the decline of America's economic power or world power or moral power, and certainly not just the decline of a slice of American life associated with organized crime. I think Tone is reacting to the decay of the American dream and a world where success only seems to confirm your true nature as a consumer. In general, I think in The Sopranos, the critique of American life isn't about intervention or about why crime life is bad. It's a critique of American consumption, particularly the latest stage it had achieved in the late 90s and early 2000s, and how that consumption contributes to the breakdown of all of the important things in these people's lives. Probably most importantly is the family. The dysfunction that permeates the whole story is motivated at root by the fact that the desires of the characters are turning more and more hollow. 
that the idea that you want to reach the heights, have a house, beautiful wife, kids, family, nice car, maybe a second house, maybe about whatever, not only were those material products themselves kind of a shadow of their former existence, as we already discussed, right, cars, houses, everything. It's a sort of manufactured, plasticky, cheap mess without any craftsmanship in it. But also the desire of for success in America seemed now only to be about material success. It's very difficult to discuss the American dream with Americans because we're so in it. It's very hard to get a objective, honest look at what it's really means. I mean, is it just everything that an American wants? Probably not. Is it uh, that thing which everybody in America together wants? Probably not that. I, I mean, right. So, but we have a general sense. And it seems like one thing the American dream has got to have is material success. I think there's no American dream without material success in any time. But obviously, just because you have material success in every version does not mean that every version is only including material success or that it's even defined by the fact that it includes material success. It's an open question whether or not the late 90s, early 2000s, up to today, is living in the new consumption-only American dream or whether this has always been the case. But I don't think it has always been the case. And that leads us into part two, where we will look in depth at the better American dream. And that leads us, of course, to The Great Gatsby. college and in high school, I would say I do about 20 to 25% of the assigned readings. And while I think it's true that most people don't do all of the readings, that's definitely below average. So there's going to be some irony in me saying that you should have already read the book to listen to this part, but I am going to say that. Uh, the Great Gatsby, you know, along with Moby Dick and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, is considered one of you know, the great American novel is what you often hear people say. And the trouble with novels is there's no real good way to sum up what they're about if you haven't read them. I mean, you can kind of do a plot summary, but that doesn't really get any of the power of the author there. You can do sort of quotes, but then you don't really, these quotes are just sort of hanging in the air. And so really the way to read the, the way to understand what the novel's about or to get the summary of the novel is actually to read it. And, uh, with that said, you know, this is what all of my professors say to me, uh, and I still do 20%. So listen at your own peril. There will be spoilers, but um, you'll be able to make it through. That said, even if you've read The Great Gatsby, all of the plot points might not be immediately uh, in front of you. And so it's worth mentioning, you know, there are essentially four main characters you have to care about. There's the guy that the book's named after, Jay Gatsby. There's the girl that got away for Gatsby, Daisy Buchanan. There's the girl's husband, Tom Buchanan. And there's the narrator, uh, Nick Carraway. And the way the novel gets going is Nick, who is from a sort of wealthy family in the Midwest, moves out to New York. And he gets a house 
on Long Island next to a sort of billionaire, mysterious type of guy, Gatsby. And he doesn't really know much about him, but he gets a house as his neighbor, much smaller house next to Gatsby's mansion. But uh, Nick is cousins with Daisy, and so he ends up at Tom's house, and Daisy's there because they're married, and essentially they have a good time in New York. And all this time, we don't know really anything about Gatsby until Nick gets an invite to one of Gatsby's parties. And this is the thing you'll see in movie trailers and... You know, when people are posting on Instagram or whatever about the book, is just the, the the parties and the decadence of Gatsby is a sort of exciting thing, and the it does play a somewhat major role in the book. But the main plot device is so Nick is invited to Gatsby's party, and it turns out that Gatsby sort of knew of his relation to Daisy, them being cousins, and he wanted to use that because uh, Gatsby wants to get Daisy back. Gatsby and Daisy had previously had some, you know, fell in love, something happened. It's not exactly clear what before the First World War, but then Gatsby's deployed and Daisy ends up marrying this other rich guy, Tom. And he's a real piece of work. He's sort of a ethno-nationalist type. He's like extremely wealthy, but he's always complaining about things. And eventually the four main characters all go to New York during a real hot summer day and and the whole dynamic of it is that Gatsby's trying to get Daisy back. They had had sort of an affair uh, in the weeks preceding this. And basically, the idea is this is where Daisy's going to tell Tom it's over. Which, you know, if, if you're going to, in terms of like planning how to get divorced, it's probably better not to have a fourth party there. And also the guy you're going with there, all at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. But this is this is essentially what happens. In New York City, Daisy's supposed to tell her husband it's over and that she's going to live with Gatsby, marry Gatsby. And then Gatsby gets poked at by Tom enough for not having been born into his money and a bunch of different class things. Gatsby blows up and then Daisy can't really yeah, go with Gatsby anymore. He also... We don't need to get too in the details here. Basically, turns out that Daisy was supposed to go with Gatsby while in New York, and she's not gonna. So Daisy and Gatsby drive back in the same car to New York, and because of sort of a series of coincidences that aren't worth explaining here, Tom's mistress, who has the name Myrtle, who we haven't talked about yet, thought that Tom was in the car that Daisy and Gatsby were actually in. And she runs out into the street, and... Gatsby's car runs over Myrtle and kills her. There's a line in the book that is funny. It sort of tells you what this Tom guy is all about because he, as he's coming back a few minutes later, sees what's happened. He realizes the car that ran over Myrtle didn't even stop. He gets out and looks over her body, and there's a doctor there who had stopped, and the doctor said she was instantly killed when the car hit her. And Tom looks over her, and he repeats just the words, instantly killed. And that sort of sums up Tom for you. So Myrtle is killed by Gatsby's car, and Tom, trying to get back at this Gatsby guy, and also a bit upset that his own mistress was killed, he tells Myrtle's husband that it was Gatsby that ran Myrtle over. And it was Gatsby's car. 
It turns out a big twist is that actually Daisy was driving. She and she hit Myrtle and didn't stop. And whatever, Gatsby never lets this out. Myrtle's husband shows up at Gatsby's house a few days later and sees Gatsby in his pool. And he shoots and kills Gatsby. And then himself. So that's essentially the plot of the book. You can see, though, it doesn't help you. If you've read it, you can tell that that's a wholly inadequate summary, even though it gets like a lot of the plot points. It doesn't really tell you anything about what the book's really about. And so if you ask the question, what happened? What is it really, truly about? You're going to get about two answers from people who've read the book, especially the English teacher types. One, sort of the less frequent, is that it's about aristocratic decadence in America. And you'll often hear this discussed along with a lot of the 19th century European literature, which is about class. But by far the most common description of what The Great Gatsby is really about is the American dream. And that's why we're interested in it. The problem, though, with saying the book's about the American dream is it's not really clear what the American dream is supposed to be. So if this book is supposed to be, I remember my English teacher would always say, a cautionary tale about the American dream, well, you have to figure out what the American dream is. It's fairly easy to see why it's a cautionary tale because it's this Gatsby guy who had a lot of aspirations, who wanted to get the girl back and sort of got the girl back, but then it blew up in his face. So, okay, fine, cautionary tale. But what was the American dream? It's not an impossible question to answer, really. Whatever Gatsby wanted, we can say that's kind of the American dream in the book. And that's what you should be cautious about because he wanted something and he almost got it. And then it blew up and it ended up getting him killed. And it's a tragedy. So there are lots of answers you could give to the question, what did Gatsby want? And in a way, this is the parallel from the first part. Because if the question you're interested in in The Sopranos is, what is it about modern American life that made Tony have this sort of melancholic sense of his life, despite achieving material success, then the question in The Great Gatsby is similar, but not exactly the same. The question in The Great Gatsby is, what is it that Gatsby wanted? Now, one easy answer, this is sort of the B-plus paper answer, is he wanted money, that American dream is kind of a freebie. American dream means you're in America, and you have a dream, and that dream is to make a lot of money. And Gatsby essentially achieves this. He's from a poor Midwestern family. He comes east and through various crime schemes, bootlegging and bond schemes and various other things, he amasses an immense fortune. I think the reason this is a B-plus paper, though, is that, one, the book is really not so much about the perils of money per se, but about class. And this is where the less common answer that English teachers give is halfway right, which is that, yes, it's about money and decadence and the jazz age and you know excessive drinking and parties and all of that. But the failure on Gatsby's part is that he is unable to become a true member of the aristocratic class in America because he made his money, basically. He's a new money guy, and then the old money guys do not accept the new money guys. On the money point, though, it is worth just mentioning sort of a bit ironically, how much better it would have been to have money in the 1920s than in the 1990s. Tony Soprano gets a McMansion and a plastic Lexus. Gatsby and Tom and these rich people in New York get beautiful stone mansions on Long Island and fast, hand-built, shiny, chromed-out cars. But it goes to show the craftsmanship and the intentionality 
that was put in each car. That is, when you purchased a car, you purchased it for you to suit your own exact needs. And it was sort of custom, it was tailored like a suit even. So while it's true that Gatsby's desire wasn't money, now reading the book however many years later, you can see that there were certain things that extreme wealth used to get you, which now it doesn't really get you. It was more honorable, I think, to chase after money in the 1920s than it is today. Why? Because the things that you could purchase had a lot more value, a lot more sweat and heart poured into them than they do now. Now, you know, a fancy car is stamped out in the same way that a Kia is, uh, but that didn't used to be the case. And the same is obviously true with houses. Mick Mansion and Mansion, there's a big difference. And it's not just the Mick. I mean, a mansion of the 1920s or earlier is made out of stone by hand by people who have spent their whole life learning how to build houses out of stone and by hand. The reason you have to focus for a little bit on this distinction is that essentially performing at your best, summing up your whole life as somebody who is one of the best at doing X, maybe it's a baker, a blacksmith, or a mason, or an automobile manufacturer, that's a kind of livelihood that we don't see particularly valued today. But it used to be. And I think parts of the American dream, as it used to be expressed in the 1850s, 1920s, whenever, assumed that if you're a rich guy, you are in some way propping up this way of life for a bunch of other people. Now, that doesn't redeem chasing money only as any less decadent, but it does show that there's a social purpose in wealth that used to exist, which I do not think exists anymore. It's not the case that being wealthy today means, well, you don't provide for anybody. You're just sort of a selfish guy, and people used to be far more philanthropic. No, no. You still essentially create jobs and drive the economy, whatever else. But the point is those jobs are not fulfilling, most of them anyway. They don't, they don't allow people to perform at their best, to wholly commit themselves to a trade and produce something that they can be proud of. All that said, Gatsby's really not after the money. He's after the money for some other end. And this is not so surprising, right? The A paper in high school will say something like, he's after Daisy, the girl, but not just Daisy. He's after a kind of version of Daisy that was the version he had when he was 17 going off to war. That is, he wants a past version of Daisy. And there's a lot of truth to this. And we should consider very strongly if this is the American dream in The Great Gatsby. You know, you might be wondering, well, why say some past version of the girl? Why not just say the girl herself? You know, that's not an uncommon plot device, which is you fall in love with a girl and essentially your whole life is trying to be with that girl. And if it doesn't work, then your life's kind of over. And that's the tragedy. And that seems right for lots of books. Not quite for this one, though. Here's a quote that I think proves that from one of the last chapters in the book. This is Nick writing about Gatsby, about the reunion he and Daisy had had. Nick writes, quote, He knew when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable vision to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God, end quote. So the girl's there, and kissing the girl's a big part of it, but it's only sort of about her. The girl is the thing that signifies his ability to go back in time and relive his life. At least this is what the A paper would argue. 
the argument could just as well be labeled Gatsby wants to repeat the past as much as it could be labeled Gatsby wants the girl. And these basically go together. It's a famous line, maybe one of the most famous lines from the book is, you can't repeat the past, Nick says to Gatsby. And Gatsby says, can't repeat the past. Why, of course you can. Something like that. You know, you have to kind of do it with Leo now in your mind because he was in the most recent movie. But he has uh, some beliefs that you wouldn't really say are rational, which is, I mean, repeat the past. What's that mean? Well, does that mean you actually want to, what, go back in time? Probably not. But it means something more than I want to be nostalgic about pastimes. I mean, it's something in the middle. And the question is whether or not that's a reasonable thing to expect. And Nick doesn't think it is, but Gatsby does. And the thing that Gatsby seems to be after, that Nick is secretly kind of excited about at the same time, is not actually going back in time, but it's about, right now, just starting over. It's going back to the beginning from where we are now and sort of playing the game again. And Nick himself, the narrator slash neighbor of Gatsby, He himself gets drawn up into this fresh start idea, which is, I guess, more evidence that this might be the American dream that uh, Fitzgerald's after. And he has this great line, which, again, so many of these have now become tropes, but try, if you can, to hear this for the first time, even if you've read it 50 other times on T-shirts and Tumblr and wherever else. Nick writes, quote, And so with the sunshine and the great bursts of leaves growing on the trees, just as things grow fast in movies, I had the familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. Now, doesn't that sentence just kind of renew you a little bit? You know, springtime's coming up and, man, I mean, it does feel like, especially given the cadence of school, life does start over again with the summer, which is you finish something out, you get a break, and you can essentially take up whatever project you've been wanting to take up, get in shape. You can do a lot in the summer. But it's not exactly life beginning over again. At least this would be the cautious tale part of it. And so that's why the book falls apart. And so I think that there's essentially two papers, maybe 2.5, about what the American dream is in The Great Gatsby. We have the money thesis. We have the girl in the past thesis. And we have the other side of that, which is the repeat the past thesis. It kind of goes with the girl thesis. But just like with The Sopranos, I think there's another answer, a better answer, that explains what Gatsby wanted and what the American dream used to be. Like in The Sopranos, it's not that it disagrees with the first or the second answer. It's that it's not really what the thirst in Gatsby is for. What he really, truly, deeply wants is hard to say, but I think we can take a stab at saying it. What the American dream for Gatsby is, is not to repeat the past. It's actually to run history backward, to reverse the flow of history. Now, I have to say, this idea is not entirely of my own creation. It actually comes from, would you believe it, an English paper, literary criticism, usually like the most useless thing of all time. But it turns out this was a good paper. I mean, the problem with literary criticism in general is that They have to write a paper about something they really like. And so they sort of page through it, page through it, page through it. And then they come up with a paper topic, which has nothing to do with the reason they like the book or even why the author wrote the book. 
and then you publish the paper. And you know, if you're an undergraduate, you get a grade back. But if you're a grad student, this gets put in a journal, and you you know maybe get paid, and your professor is very proud of you. It's a whole big uh, thing, and it's not the worst thing in the world. It's just often depressing looking up literary criticism on a book you really like because it's not going to be about the part that you really like. It's going to be you know if you go through the Great Gatsby, it's all going to be about. I guess somewhat important things like water in The Great Gatsby. Uh, water's mentioned a lot. I wouldn't really say this is a book that hinges on the interpretation of water. What in general ends up happening with these literary essays is that there's some argument about the book where they take an extremely narrow focus. They focus only on you know words that start with G or something like that. I mean, generally, it's not that goofy, but sometimes it even is. They argue for a few pages, and then by like the last two pages... They remember they were excited about this book and that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with their argument. So then they kind of get their energy levels back up and write something interesting and try and capture some of the magic of the book. So that was always my MO when I had to read these things is read the introduction, skip most of the middle part, all the quotes, whatever. It's just a boring argument that even the author's not that excited about and read the last two pages. I had to make a bit of an exception to that rule, though, when I came across this essay by Jeffrey Steinbrick, which was published in the 70s, just found it online, sort of browsing around. And its title is Boats Against the Current, Mortality and the Myth of Renewal in the Great Gatsby. And you can tell this is an English paper because everyone knows how you title an English paper or like a thesis, any sort of academic paper. You have like an exciting title and then you do a colon and you say what it's actually about. This paper actually does capture something great about the book and even enhances the book in certain ways. Steinberg does a great job capturing what the 1920s were all about, kind of the intellectual trends in the air, how they viewed themselves in history. He writes, this is sort of a long quote, but it's, it's worth it. He says in the second paragraph of his essay, quote, The roar of the 20s was both a birth cry and a death rattle. For it announced the arrival of the first generation of modern Americans. It also declared an end to the Jeffersonian dream of simple agrarian virtue as the standard of national conduct. The new generation forfeited its claim to the melioristic certainties of an earlier time as the price of its full participation in the 20th century and declared itself lost not in spite of history, but because of it. Disenchanted observers remarked everywhere, as they had even before the turn of the century, that the perennial fruits of the American experience were frustration and disappointment. The new Jerusalem envisioned by our Puritan fathers was never to be realized. The possibilities of spiritual regeneration in a boundless new world were fatally diminished by the closing of the frontier, end quote. The closing of the frontier. Remember that. There might be something else going on. This is a pretty energetic passage about what the Jazz Age is all about. It's a kind of melancholy which is treated with hedonism and drinking. And what's the melancholy? Well, it's certainly nothing that Tony Soprano was experiencing, at least not really. Certainly not about the decline of organized crime. That's on the rise. Certainly not a decline of America's role in the world. That's on the rise. It's about the closing of the frontier and the promise of America turning out to be not quite as fulfilled as people would have liked. And so there's a sort of disenchantment. And of course, this isn't directly mentioned in the passage, but it has to be in the background of everyone's mind, which is the catastrophe that's the First World War and really destroys a lot of people's confidence 
is he actually goes on to make the point, which I think is exactly right, about what Gatsby really wants. It's not to repeat the past. It's to press rewind and just watch the video backwards. Now, why would you want to watch the video backwards? Well, there's essentially two ways to say it. One is the plot reasons, which is Gatsby's ascent ends with a tragedy. The girl that got away's husband convinces someone to murder Gatsby. That is not a victory, folks. If the ending's not really happy, and you know the ending's not really happy, what use is it trying to go back and, you know, repeat the happy summer days before the war? In the early days when Daisy and Gatsby first fall in love, it's not just the promise of right then and there, this is so great, whatever, 1914 makeout sesh. It's, it's the promise of a whole life that's going to be lived together. And as soon as that whole life that's lived together, happy marriage, drifting off into the sunset, doesn't happen, it kind of ruins the early days of the relationship in Gatsby's mind. And there's even some evidence during the trip to New York that this is the way that Gatsby's thinking. Because he says to Daisy, encouraging her, you know, hey, tell this guy you're not really in love with him. Gatsby says to Daisy, quote, tell him the truth, that you never loved him. And it's all wiped out forever. All wiped out forever. Boom. That's exactly what the the whole claim is of this American dream position. It's that the anticipation of the future in any given moment makes that moment's value contingent on what actually happens in the future. If the future works out, then the moment right now is redeemed. And if it doesn't work out, then it's cursed. And that's why Gatsby, he needs her to say, not that, I used to like you, and I like this other guy, and now I like you. But in order for that first moment, the thing he's trying to repeat, to be worth anything at all, it has to have always been the case. That future that they imagined way back then has to have actually occurred. And that marriage to Tom needs to be wiped out forever. And this doesn't happen. And this is the moment when things fall over in the book. So that's the plot reason to watch the movie in reverse which is if you know the future's not going to work out, the only way to have that gooey moment of first interaction be maintained is just to watch it backward with the bad part first. There's also a physics side to it, which deserves a lot of credit too, because as much as we like to think of modern times, maybe the last 20, 30, 40 years since computers or whatever, to be you know true scientific times, and all the previous times are where there was a bunch of kooky beliefs and... On a true historical timeline, we have been in the age of science, age of reason, for hundreds of years. And so the 1920s are as much a part of that as the iPhone. And one of the ideas that's physics, that's chemistry wrapped together, which has really gained a lot of prominence in the 1920s as a cultural idea, is the idea of entropy. Entropy, if you don't know, is kind of the second law. I mean, who knows really if it's a law, but everyone says it's a law, the second law of thermodynamics. And it says that in any closed system, all of the energy is going to spread out evenly over time. And a good example of this is you have like a bathtub with a bunch of cold water, and then you pour in some boiling water. And everyone knows that boiling water is going to make the whole hot tub a little bit warmer. 
but it's going to spread out. You're not just going to have a bit of boiling water in the center. Well, the problem is really not with the bathtub example, but it's with the universe example. The bathtub is the whole universe, and the sun and the earth and all human life is the hot water. And the idea is that the hot water has to be cooled off eventually. And we're just living on a slow enough time scale that we don't really see it. But the sun's going to burn out. The earth runs down. There's going to be no energy left to sustain life. And this is not a faded thing. This has nothing to do with God or men at all. This is a chemical fact about the universe. There's no use fighting it. And this is, this is the idea which has captured the 1920s, Steinbeck argues, and it seems right. He says of this idea, quote, The truth seemed to be that history itself subscribed to the theory of entropy, which was rapidly gaining currency in the early 20th century. Writers and philosophers joined men of science in the discovery that the operant energy within any closed system tends to diminish in the course of time. The universe, they declared, was in fact running downhill like a clock with an ever-relaxing mainspring, its suns growing dimmer, its planets spinning and orbiting more slowly, its capacity to sustain life always dwindling. And so you can see why this is a compelling reason to watch the movie in reverse. If things only go downhill from the start to the finish, then let's start from the finish and watch things only go uphill. Keen observers of reality, though, might point out that watching the movie in reverse, if life is the movie or time is the movie, doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make sense. It's not even conceptually an easy thing to think about, like, you know, your basic version of time travel. You know, I'm here in time, then I go back in time. I already have lived in the past. How much harder would it be to live in the past again? But what would that even mean to live time backwards? I mean, would that mean it becomes the same as living times forward right now? No. I mean, if it did that, that wouldn't be living time backwards, at least not what Gatsby really wants. And so it doesn't even have a coherent way to express itself. And Fitzgerald never says, he never writes that where Nick asks, you know, what are you really after, Gatsby? Is it about this girl or is it something else? And Gatsby says, well, Nick, let me tell you, it's sort of about the girl, but mostly what I want to do is uh, reverse the flow of history and live life backward. They never have that conversation. And there's a reason, because when you say it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not really an idea that's supposed to be in the foreground. This is the background desire that motivates Gatsby through his life. It motivates him through uh, gaining wealth, through chasing the girl the first time, through the war, through chasing the girl the second time, and to his death. Now we have to talk about the frontier because this is where the idea that you have to live life backward, watch the movie in reverse, becomes connected to America. Because up to this point, you could say, all right, nice theory about the American dream, but this is just a dream. This is just kind of some kooky thing that anybody anywhere on Mars or the moon could have, and it has nothing to do with America at all. So how could this be the great American novel if it's not about America? But it turns out it does. The reason this is fundamentally an American desire, and actually the, I think the root of the American dream, at least in that time, is that the idea that you're going to reverse the flow of history is the fundamental idea of the frontier spirit, the influence that the archetype of the pioneer, the explorer, pushing the frontier further and further west, expanding to the last known places on the planet, 
and starting over. This is all part of the history of America. People now say the frontier is a myth. And I always found that a little bit goofy. I mean, maybe it's a myth in the way that we think about it, or it's a myth because it happened a long time ago. But certainly, people took the frontier very seriously when it actually existed. And even, you know, in the 1920s, when there's no no meaningful frontier left in the mainland United States, it still is the defining national characteristic, which is that America had a frontier, and that defined the particular ways of life that Americans had. And it's very ironic. This is pointed out by lots of authors uh, who write about the great Gatsby, that Gatsby and Nick and Tom and Daisy and even Fitzgerald, the author himself, all are born in the Midwest and moved to the East Coast, which if you think about it is exactly the opposite movement that the pioneers took, which is East to West. And I think you can see in this maybe a a kind of desire to reverse the flow of history. Now, you could say, and maybe you'd be sort of right in a lot of cases, that, well, they want to go back. They're just sort of rewinding the video to press play again later, and they want to do that pioneer business again. Yeah, that's, I think, partially true. Another part of it, though, is that you have to keep in mind the fact that we know how this pioneer story ends up. And it's not the utopia that the pioneers thought it was going to be. And so given that that's the case, maybe on a, on a more simplistic metaphysical time travel level, you just want to go back to the east and move west again with the pioneers. But if we think about it the way that you think about Gatsby and meeting Daisy for the first time, remember, the first time only works if there's a bunch of other times. The frontier dream only works if it's actually carried out. And in the 1920s, there's a lot of reasons to think it's not carried out. The United States is involved in European wars. America has become a sort of decadent capitalist economy, which is maybe not bad, but certainly a betrayal of the Puritan values of the founding. And it's not a particularly equal society, certainly not racially, and certainly not economically either. Once you connect the frontier, the freedom that provided, the way of life it allowed, with reversing the flow of history, you can all of a sudden understand what Gatsby's true desire was. One, to go back in time, rewind the video. But even more than that, maybe to not ever have had to rewind the video. Essentially, he wants this utopian world defined by the frontier And he's not alone in that desire. And I think we can say that this is Fitzgerald's American dream. Constant reinvention on a national scale, which is sort of wrapped up in freedom, exploration, independent spirit. So you can see why this fits both senses of the word dream. It's both something that you can desire in a vivid sense, but it's also not possible, or at least hasn't panned out. And it's something you wake up from. And so there's a reason to view it in a sort of cautious way. But there's also a reason to view it with a bit of sorrow from 2019, which is that this is not what the American dream is today, at least not in any conscious way that anybody could express. I think if you were to submit that melancholy in America today still has to do with the frontier, 
people would sort of laugh at you and say, look, you know, that's maybe a nice literary point, but it's not about the frontier anymore. The frontier is gone. The memory of the frontier is gone. The frontier, people don't even really watch Western movies anymore, right? So the fake frontier from cowboy movies is diminishing in itself. There's no meaningful sense in which we could say this is the American dream today. But it used to be. And the fact that it used to be truly a different thing with its own cautionary you know, elements is something we should think about and maybe wonder whether it's better to have a more direct desire. You know, the last lines of The Great Gatsby are probably the best thing ever written about America. And they just sort of hit you on a poetic level. So you don't have to have really read the book or understand the plot lines or what's going on at all to do it. But I hope this idea that the true desire of these guys is to reverse the flow of history, I hope that adds an extra sort of a new level of understanding to why these lines are so important, which we'll hear in just a second. And the reason it's so important is that it connects fundamentally hope and wonder in life with the American frontier. And while the frontier is gone, and it's never coming back in the same way, it did actually exist. It's not just a completely made-up idea. Now, it didn't pan out in the way people wanted. There's no utopian city on a hill thing going on, really, in the 1920s. That's not the feeling people have. But there was a time when that seemed possible. And that's the American dream, to get back to a place where the future seemed enchanted. The ending of The Great Gatsby goes like this, quote, Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired face-to-face, for the last time in history, with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. 